We've been going through the story of the life of David, and you just heard read the words of David in a couple of psalms that he has written, and uh, they're the words of a man who are in who is in deep pain. They're the words of a man who is in extreme suffering. They're the words of a man who is in the wilderness. And this morning we want to recount some of those stories from the book of 1 Samuel. What did David go through when he was in the wilderness, when he was in suffering? And they gave birth to many of the psalms that we read. So I want, to, I want you to listen again to some of those words. I'm going to read a couple of those verses in Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. We're going to be all over the place in Scripture this morning. So if you want to keep your Bible in Psalm 57, those, those verses, I won't have as many of those on the screen, and the rest of the verses we'll have on the screen for you. But go ahead and go to Psalm 57, and you can stay there while we go to a bunch of others. But listen, listen to the words of David as he's in deep pain, as he's in deep suffering. Psalm 57, 1 and 2 to get started. Here's what David says. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. Then look down at verse 4. He says this. This is what he describes the emotional turmoil that he's going through in verse 4. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts and the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. He's in the midst of lions. He feels his enemies have sharp arrows and who have teeth like swords. Go to Psalm 142. Well, you don't need to turn there, but I want you to see Psalm 142. This is how he says it here. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him and I tell my trouble. David is crying out to God in pain, in suffering, in the wilderness. A couple of verses later, he's going to go and say, there's no one who cares about me. What does a man have to be going through to cry out those words? What kind of experiences take someone to the point of that kind of pain? I know we're not going to look at them this morning. I want you to see more of David's lament, more of the way that David cries out in this kind of pain and suffering. Psalm chapter 10, verse 1, here's what David says. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Do you see David crying out in this pain? Look at Psalm 13, and here's what he says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Verse 3 says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And he closes with this, Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. How long, O Lord? And then in Psalm 22, the first two verses of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Why, God? How long does this suffering go on? When will you rescue I cry out to God. This is what David is saying. Now, if we were honest this morning, some, some of you are questioning, like, 
Those words are in the Bible? You're allowed to talk to God like that? Some of you are nervous for me because you think a lightning bolt is about to come down and strike me. You're not allowed. You're in church. You can't complain to God like that, right? I mean, if we were honest, this kind of makes us uncomfortable to be that raw with our pain and, and questioning God and saying, God, why? How long? God, don't you care? But you see, we, we as a people, we as Christians... We need to learn this language that David learned. We need to realize that, that God is with us even in the pain, even through the suffering, even in the wilderness. And we as a people need to realize that, that God has given us in his scripture the language to deal with this kind of suffering. So what was David going through? What, what, was, what was in the life of David that called, caused him to pen some of these words? David wrote many, many psalms. I read some of them for you this morning. Uh, many of them are in the category of lament. We'll talk a little bit more about what lament means as we go this morning, but many of them are crying out like this. Uh, some of those that I read for you have nothing to do with 1 Samuel, at least not that we know of, although men, some of these events in 1 Samuel in the life of David could have spurred why he wrote them. The reason we're in Psalm 57 and 142 in particular is because we've got notations that, that make us think some of what we're going to talk this morning is the background information. When David was hiding in the caves, when he was in refuge, when he was in the wilderness, when he was on the run for his life, he wrote some of these words. So what was David going Going through. We need to catch ourselves up in the story. If you'd like to follow along in 1 Samuel, you can, starting in chapters 18. If you want to just stay in Psalm 57, you can. I need to summarize some of the events of the story. We've picked up David. This is a bit of a turn in the story of David. So far as we've been tracing along the story, David has been on the rise. He's the shepherd boy whose God's hand is on and he's chosen as king. And you see David conquer Goliath. And wow, this is exciting to watch God work, to see God's hand of blessing on the life of David to see the friendship that David had with Jonathan as Pastor Kevin walked us through that story last week and to see the incredible ways that God used David's life and then we begin to see a turn not all was rosy for David not all was easy it wasn't always David fighting Goliath and Goliath falling those are fun stories. Sometimes it was David in the wilderness. Sometimes it was David in discouragement. Sometimes it was David in despair. So right away in Psalm chapter 18, after David makes the covenant with Jonathan, you see David in Saul's service, and Saul's jealousy of David rose. Saul became very angry with David because when David came back from fighting Goliath, the people of the city, the women of the city in particular, were singing this song that Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And when Saul realizes this, he realizes what more can David have but the kingdom. He was very angry and very jealous that people saw David as prominently as they did, that they wanted to lift him up. And as David served in Saul's court, it came to the point where Saul, in a fit of anger, jealousy, and rage, took the spear that was in his hand and he tried to pin David to the wall. Twice. And David has to flee. And David has to escape. And, and, and and yet, 
here's what Saul decides to do. I, I, I can no longer have this man in my courtyard serving in his privileged position. I'm going to make him a commander in the army. And he makes him a commander of a thousand, thinking that if he puts him out there in the face of the war, he will be executed and problem absolved. And yet that doesn't happen. David has great success in, as the commander of a thousand. And, and Saul's anger and jealousy only continues to grow. And so then he decides to see if he can trap David this way, and he promises his eldest daughter, Merib, to David. Well, Saul's a trickster, and he doesn't follow through on that promise. And so after time, it becomes known to Saul that, that the younger daughter, Michael, is in love with David. And Michael genuinely loves David, and Saul looks at this and says, this is a good thing. Uh, he, she can be the trap for him. And so Saul once again makes a pledge, David, why don't you be my son-in-law? I will give you my daughter, Michael, and he promises, uh, he doesn't need any bride price. David hasn't, doesn't have to give a dowry other than he has to kill a certain number of Philistine warriors. And Saul is thinking, I got him. There's no way he can kill a hundred. So David goes out and he kills 200 and he brings those back to Saul and he proves that he has killed this many Philistines and and this only angers Saul even more to see, to see the success that God gives David, to see the genuine love that David and Michael have, and he continues to be angry. So at this point in the story, then Jonathan steps back in, and he tries to see if he can calm his father down, and he convinces Saul. He says, don't, 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 this is an innocent man. Don't sin against him, and Saul temporarily promises. Well, he, he makes a promise that then he ends up breaking. I, w I won't hurt him. I won't hurt him. He brings David back into his royal position, and now he returns to his position and he's there once again playing music to comfort Saul and Saul again in a fit of rage takes his spear and tries to pin him to the wall. And David again has to elude and escape. He runs for his life, runs back to his house and runs in the door and he's, he's with Michael and Michael realizes his wife that the house is being watched and realizes if, if you don't leave, if you don't get out of here tomorrow, you're going to be killed. Saul sends people to watch the house and, and, and David's life is on the line. And so David and Michael come up with this plan where she sneaks him out the window and he runs. He's a fugitive. He has to leave. He's lost his position, his privileged position in Saul's court. And then you begin to see the relationships that are lost. This is the beginning of 11 years of fugitive living for David. Can you imagine saying goodbye to your wife and family for 11 years and being on the run, knowing that you are being hunted? And so Michael has to come up with a plan to cover David's tracks, and, and Saul comes to her and says, why did you do this? And, and she covers for David. And so Saul then decides he's actually going to go leave the kingdom and, and pursue David through the countryside. And there's, there's more stories that continue that we don't have time to cover all of them. This is, this is really chapters 18 through 22. Uh, we're going to pick up a story in chapter 24 as well. But there's, there's more to be told in all of this. You see then that Jonathan and David have to say goodbye. Not only does David lose his relationship with his wife, Michael, but, but he knows that it's no no longer safe to stay in Jonathan's company. And whereas you heard about the covenants that Jonathan and David made last week and this close friendship that they had, it becomes very obvious that if David stays, his life is in danger. He has to leave. And so David and Jonathan work out a plan to protect one another. And it comes to the point where David has to run. 
And scripture says that the two men are there weeping together, knowing that this is goodbye. They would be very limited interactions from this point on in the rest of their life. And it says that, that they both wept and David wept the most. And so you, you, you see that point of, of leaving such a close friend. Well, at this point in chapter 21, David then is with some men and he's on the run. He's running for his life and he comes to a priest in the place of Nob and he, he, he then asks for help and support. He asks for food and he wants to know if there's any armor and he has to spin some lies and tell some deceit in order to to work his way through this. So you will notice as David goes through his season of suffering and wilderness, much of it is wrong that's been done to him. There are people that have sinned against him. A few of the stories that I won't go into uh, explaining all of the detail this morning, some of it's complicated even worse because David sins in ways that aren't appropriate and probably bring extra hardship but still lands him in this season of suffering, still lands him in this wilderness. So he shows up to the priest at Nob and he asks for the food. And then he also says, I, I have no armor, I have no sword. And, and the priest says, well, you know what? Actually, we do have a sword. It belonged to a guy named Goliath. Uh, they, they kept Goliath's sword here. And so they, they give it to David. And D David takes this. And I want you to see then what happens in chapter 21 at the end of the book. Chapter 21, not the end of the book, the end of the chapter. And I want you to listen to this commentary then. We've got the verses for you on the screen. 1 Samuel 21. And, and this is kind of the summary then. Here's why David, after he leaves here, he decides that he's going to go to a place called Gath. You'll remember Gath because that's where Goliath was from. And he was going to go to the king there in, in Gath. And as he's on the run, perhaps he can hide. He can, perhaps he can be a mercenary and fight in, in, these, uh, in this king's army or slip under the raid or something, somehow he can slip into Gath and not be noticed. Now, I'm not sure what David was thinking, but he's got Goliath's sword. Goliath was a massively tall dude. The sword was massively large. He, it was going to be difficult to fly into the radar. And looks, looks what happens then, starting in verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his fiddle run down his beard then Achish said to his servants behold you see the man is mad why have you brought him to me do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence shall this fellow come into my house you see what happens? Here's how David's plan works. He sneaks into the king there and he comes before Achish and, and, and they recognize him as a threat. And all of a sudden, David then realizes this is not good and pretends to be insane. He's trying to some way cover his tracks. And you realize at this point, this is how low David has sunk. We're just a couple chapters removed where David is the one killing Goliath. David is the one hoisting Goliath's sword in victory. And a couple chapters later, he's hiding with Goliath's sword and has to pretend to be the madman. He's on the run. He's in the wilderness. 
He's in the midst of pain and suffering. And look at verse chapter 22, the first couple verses of chapter 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there was with him about 400 men. So here's David in the cave of Adullam. He's hit rock bottom. And there's 400 others who are on the outs. They're in debt. They're discouraged. This this is the lowly group in the wilderness literally on the run. And as the next couple of chapters play out, you're going to see David and Saul kind of in this chess match where there's these wars going on, where Saul is carrying out his anger and slaughtering people, where, where David is on the run for his own life. He's trying to protect others, but he's also getting hunted himself and he's hiding in caves and he's truly in the wilderness. So I want to ask you this morning, where do you turn, where do you go when you're in the wilderness? When you're in the cave of Adullam? How do you handle those moments of life? When when David is in the wilderness and in these caves, he writes for us many of the Psalms. And we're going to look at a couple of the things that he says in Psalm 57 and 142 because we think these are some of the Psalms, some of the background circumstances and events, 1 Samuel 22, 1 Samuel 24. Some of these things are what's taking place in the background of Psalm 57 and Psalm 142. So what do we learn in the wilderness? How do we navigate the hard times of life. We need to pay careful attention to this question as Christians. For one of two reasons. One, either you are in the wilderness right now, or you were, or you will be, or secondly, someone you love is in the wilderness right now. We need to acknowledge that as, as Christians, that, that the Christian life is not one of ease for, pain-free, glorious, high road, your best life now, glorious blessings, God's just going to fill your life with wonderful riches. That's not the Christian life. That's not what God called his disciples to. And many of you are living through the wilderness now. Either you are currently or you have just come out of or you will be going into and suffering is a natural part of the Christian life and the pain that that brings. And so brothers and sisters, if you're here in the wilderness this morning, you're, you're in good company. God's word has much to speak to you, has much encouragement to bring. It could be The death of a loved one, another form of lost and broken relationship, whether in family or in church or in workplace, could be financial hardship and ruin. Many of you are aware that uh, a year ago my mother was diagnosed with ALS, a, a terminally ill disease that we're watching her live with now in many ways, feel we're in the middle of watching this wilderness experience play itself out. There are others of you that have, are living through hardship far worse than I have lived through. The pain of watching um, children make choices and decisions that you wouldn't want. The pain of losing children. What, what do you do with those kind of wilderness experiences? 
God's word has comfort and encouragement and hope for you here this morning. And then not only are either you in the wilderness or you were or you might be in the wilderness, but someone you love may be going through the wilderness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, even if a verse or a psalm is not my own prayer, it is nevertheless the prayer of another member of the community. Brothers and sisters, if you're not hurting, there are people around you who are, and how can you help encourage them? And some of the lessons that we learn from David in the wilderness will be helpful to us in this. It will be helpful to us as we seek what does this mean and how do we turn and look to God together. Let's look at Psalm 57. What are some of the encouragements that we can get? We're going to be looking at both 57 and 142, but if you keep your finger in Psalm 157. I'll put some of the other verses on the screen, and there's several steps or several points of application that will help us through these moments of light. First of all, the first thing we need to do in these moments of wilderness is simply cry out to God. Speak to Him. Lament. Tell Him about your pain. Look at Psalm 57, verse 1 and 2. Listen to the way David speaks. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High to the God who fulfills his purposes for me. And then on the screen you have Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2 that say this, With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Do you tell God about the pain you're going through? Do you cry out to him? This word cry is like a loud proclamation. It's, it's crying out. It's saying, God, where are you? This hurts. I'm going through pain. God, this is my complaint. Now that sounds weird to complain to God. In fact, the New Testament tells us to do all things without complaining, right? We're supposed to rejoice in all times, right? Is this contrary? Do the two mesh? Yes, yes, they mesh. The, the scripture here does not contradict itself. It's one of the things we need to realize is that crying out to God in pain is the pathway to rejoicing. That's the way a man named Mark Vrogop says it. He just wrote a new book. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Some, some of you might be this, this idea of lament as a category of scripture or as a category of language. It might be a new concept. So let me give you a definition a working definition of lament. There would be many, but here is his working definition. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. That's why you see David here in pain, and he's saying, with my voice I cry out to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. In trust, he's complaining to God, saying, God, here's, here's, here's my burden. Here's my hurt. Lament can be defined as a loud cry, a howl, or a passionate expression of grief. Throughout the scriptures, lament gives voice to the strong emotions that believers feel because of suffering. It wrestles with the struggles that surface. Lament typically asks at least two questions. Where are you, God? And if you love me, why is this happening? Did you know you're allowed to talk to God that way in faith? Not in rebellious criticism. God, this hurts. Everything I know about you to be a God who is true and loving and this doesn't match. Do you feel that pain? God, what, what's going on? Have you seen children 
cry to their parents? Have you seen children scream out in pain? So the child gets an owie, a scraped knee, a boo-boo, and the child has to run to mom or dad, right? So my children, uh, various ones have come to me less or more, but we all know mom is the favorite in those scenarios. Some of them, I've been surprised how much they're willing to come to me. There's one of our children that when the boo-boo occurs, dad is invisible. It is make a beeline to mom. There is really um, um, screaming and wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth and a head buried in mom's lap, right? And there's two things going on there as I watch this and observe. One, this child is screaming out, I hurt! I hurt! This isn't right! But the second beautiful thing going on there is this expression of trust. Mom is good. Mom can make the pain go away. I trust my mom. And all, I can't even get words out, but I can verbalize, Mom, if you love me, help. Right? That's what lament is. Turning to God and running to him and saying, God, why? Where? Of everything I know about you, this doesn't match. Do you speak with God that way about your pains and hurts? Or have you gone silent to God? Some of us go through times of suffering and sorrow and pain. And we work hard to keep that area of our life closed off. I'm not going to talk with God about it. I'm not going to talk with you about it. Brothers and sisters, you're, you're missing this category of lament, a biblical language that can help you deal with that hardship and suffering. Lament doesn't make things easy. Lament doesn't take your pain away. Lament is the God-prescribed language and vocabulary for dealing with these hard situations so that you have a way to navigate the pain and the hardship. Because if you stop crying out to God, if you close up in these scenarios and refuse to speak to God about these times of pain, it's only going to work itself out in some other way and it's not going to be healthy for you or the people around you? Do you run to God? Do you cry out to Him? Do you say, God, here's my complaint. I'm crying to you. Be merciful to me, O God. Learn the language of lament and cry out to God. Secondly, here's the second point. As you go through this, as you find yourself in these scenarios, as you are lamenting, as you're thinking, what does, what does getting out of the wilderness look like? You need to keep a resolute focus on the glory of God, that God would be exalted and magnified. What do I mean by the glory of God. I'm specifically talking about this idea that God would be made to look beautiful, that God would be magnified, that other people would look at your life and through it see God as good and glorious and lifted up, that you yourself would know God as good and glorious and lifted high. So come back to Psalm 57 if you're there. Look at Psalm 57 twice in this prayer of lament. David then looks to God, and this is the refrain, both in verse 5 and in verse 11, and he says this, he says, Be exalted, O God, verse 5, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, verse 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. As David is in the wilderness, he's realizing that he needs his, his greatest excuse me, his greatest goal and desire is that God would be lifted up and glorified. God, work out your plans. Work out your purposes. God, glorify yourself. Do you long for God to be glorified in and through your life, even if it's difficult?
If you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you don't have the context and framework to even understand what it is I'm talking about. The glory of God won't look glorious and beautiful to you. You see, I, w- I want to read for you some, book, some verses from Paul's uh, book called Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and here's what Paul says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here's what Paul is saying. He's writing to believers and he says, you've been justified by faith. If you're here this morning and you don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, do you see that you need one? Do you see the sin and the brokenness of the world, the sin in your own life that causes you to realize, I don't measure up. Uh, I fall short of a glorious, righteous, holy God, and you can only be made right through the grace which God provides. You can only be made right through, you can only have peace with God by being justified through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why God sent Jesus Christ to this earth to live a perfect sinless life and to die on a cross to take the punishment for which you and I deserve. And only by turning from our sins and placing our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ can we then have peace with God. And for believers now who have that hope we have peace with God we recognize that we uh, because of the gospel and because of what Christ has done we now hope in the glory of God and this life here yet isn't finished it's painful that's why the passage continues not only that but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance endurance produces character character produces hope verse 5 and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, we should be hoping in the glorious truths of the gospel, in what God has provided salvation through us, and the fact that one day this will all be made complete. We will stand before God face to face, and every tear will be wiped away, and all wrongs will be righted. But brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to you to lift up that hope and to never let it go and to say, I want God's plans to be exalted and glorified. I don't, my goals are not for my life to be pain-free and easy and joyous. My, the goals for my life is that God's name would be made great. Is that true? Do you have that desire? One commentator put it this way, David wonderfully looks up from his own urgent interest to his overriding concern that God should be exalted. In such a crisis, the equivalent to hallowed be thy name from the Lord's Prayer was both a victory in itself and a weapon against the enemy. Here I am in the wilderness. My, my, my life is being hunted. God be exalted. God, your name be lifted high. It's a weapon against the enemy. It's an expression of God. Your name is great. This is where our goal needs to be. The book of Isaiah, I don't have these verses for you on the screen. I just want you to listen. Isaiah chapter 48. This, listen to the reason that God brings his people through suffering and hardship. He explains it to the people of Israel. He was particularly giving them a difficult time through the nation of Babylon. And he said this. That he's explaining to them, this is why I've taken you through the situation that I have. And he says, for my 
name's sake, I defer my anger. God is speaking here. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Do you catch how passionate God is for his own glory? For my name's sake, for the sake of my praise, for my own sake, for my own sake, my glory I will not give to another. God is passionate for his own glory and he is willing to lead his children through the, through the wilderness to bring him glory. Are you willing to make that your greatest goal? That God, whatever you want to do with my life, I want to see you as great and good and glorious. I want others to see you as great and good and glorious. Be exalted, O God, that your name would be lifted high. I remember a time in my life when I was going through a particularly pressing season and I had a friend who knew me well and, and he explained to me ways that he saw God using my life for good things in the lives of others. And it was hard to hear that. Through tears, I said, it's hard. It is hard to know that God in all of his glory and love and goodness wants to use our lives to bring himself glory. But brothers and sisters, I stand before you not as someone who perfectly has this figured out, but as someone who's straining to say, yeah, yeah, God's name be lifted high, not mine. God, do what you want with my life. And if you, if you don't make God's life, God's glory, the number one goal of your life, you, you don't have the context, the framework to navigate these difficult situations in life. And sometimes, I'm not saying that when you make God's glory the, the number one thing in your life, then the wilderness goes away. I'm not saying the wilderness is less easy. I'm saying the, the, the sorrows of the wilderness are compounded when we don't have that framework, when, we, when we're looking for a way out of the suffering and testing, which is a concept we'll turn to next. Where do we go in the face of suffering? Are we looking for an easy way out? Or are we going to engage in these hard times and say, God, do what you want with my life. So number one, cry out to God, lament. Secondly, be fixed on his glory. Be focused and fixed on his glory. And then finally, you, you've got one of two choices to make in the face of hardship and suffering. One of two choices to make. The, the first is a simple shortcut way out. Are you going to look for those shortcuts? Or are you going to trust God? Cling ever closer to him. Ask God to work on you and shape you and mold you and choose to trust in God as a refuge. Which of the two will you choose? When you are faced with those hardships in life, will you look for a shortcut and a way out or will you choose to trust in God? I'm going to put some verses on the screen for you in 1 Samuel 24. So this is coming back to the story and the life of David. At this point, David is in a cave. He uh, is on the run with his men. He, he has many men with him at this point, and Saul is hunting him down. In fact, David and his men are in the back, darkest, deepest corners of the cave, and they see Saul make an entrance into the cave. Now Saul enters the cave for less than army reasons. He's there to relieve himself, uh, to answer the call of nature, and he's in the cave. And David realizes this, and his men, his men even turn to him and say, Aha, look! 
The Lord has answered, this is, God is now at work, like, look, God has delivered him. Go kill him, chop off his head, right? This, God is, that, that's what the men are saying to David, and David realizes he can't do that. He cannot take a shortcut. He, he refuses to take a shortcut, and so he crawls closely to Saul and cuts off a corner of his robe just to prove I could have. And, and scripture is interesting here that he was convicted or struck at that point, even at that action, and he convinces his men, no, we cannot kill him. This would be an improper shortcut of the way out. And so Saul leaves the cave, and David comes out to the entrance of the cave, and I want you to hear then what David says to Saul to let him know what's happened. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why did you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord be the judge. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Do you see the confidence that David has in God, the trust that he has in God, that at this moment there's an easy way out. Kill Saul and the wilderness years are over, but David knows this is not the plan that God has appointed. And David chooses to trust God and he will not take a shortcut. I told you about times when my children will run to their mom, bury their face in her lap, and they will lament and cry out. They trust her goodness. That's not always how they respond. Have you seen a child who responds differently? Not all children, when they're hurt, are just melt into brokenness. Some go into rage, right? Have you ever seen a child get hurt and the world is going to pay? Toys begin to be thrown across the room. Siblings begin to be hit. Although not everybody responds in anger like that. Some children get hurt and they run to their room and they hide in the corner and they will not talk to anyone. You will pay by their silence. Right? And don't some of us respond the same way? Instead of choosing to trust in God, we look for shortcuts out and it may come out in the wrong way, perhaps through anger, perhaps through silence. But my point so much this morning is not particular, what particular way it comes out as much as this. Brothers and sisters, when you find yourself in the wilderness, be on guard. Be on guard against the shortcut. You're, you're in a unique moment of... Um, where temptation can get to you in ways that you would have not expected before, things you didn't think possible of you, your frame of mind now somehow makes acceptances for these things of, 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 of looking for shortcuts out of the wilderness. There's no shortcuts out of the wilderness. Don't turn that way, but instead choose to trust in God, clinging to him and his goodness. Trust in who God is. Look at Psalm 57. If your Bible is still there, look down at verse 6 then. Here's what it looks like to trust in God. Here's what it looks like to cling to him as a refuge. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps, still speaking of his enemies as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath cast down... <laughs> 
Psalm 56 sounds different than Psalm 57. Let me go to verse 6 of Psalm 57. They set, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. And then flip over to Psalm 142. I'll have the verses for you on the screen. Psalm 142, verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Trust in God. Don't, don't take the shortcuts, but cling to him. You'll notice through the Psalms of Lament, almost all of them, there's only one that doesn't, but every other one turns then. There's this turning point where they're crying out to God and saying, God, why? Why? How long? Be merciful. And then there's a turning point of, but I will trust in God. You, you are my refuge. You are my strength. And here's David in a cave in what would, could be described as a refuge or a stronghold or a hiding place. And he says, God, you are my hiding place. God, you are the one I will trust in. God, you are good and I will rest and trust in you. And this is what God was up to in David's life. You think of what lay ahead of David in, in his years of service and God was at work in David's life to bring a closeness and an intimacy with him that no one else could duplicate. A man named Michael Card wrote a book. It's called A Sacred Sorrow, Reaching Out to God in the Lost Language of Lament. And he said this, speaking of David, in the wilderness, the stark severity of David's life pressed him to make one of two choices. Avoid the forsaken sense of suffering it causes and find a substitute for intimacy with God or stubbornly refuse to let go of the loneliness and continue on the path toward an ever-increasing, continuously painful, unheard-of intimacy with God. David's two choices are still our only ones today. Brothers and sisters, when God leads us into the wilderness, when your friends go through wilderness, you've got one of two choices one is to stubbornly refuse to deal with that pain and sorrow and suffering and try to find some other substitute that will satisfy and quiet the longing, the nagging, the, the, the noise going on in your heart through that pain and suffering. That won't work. It will be painful for you. It will be painful for those around you. Or you can turn to God and stubbornly refuse to let go of his goodness and clinging to him in his mercy and saying, I will trust him whether this wilderness lasts one month or one year or one decade or one lifetime. God is good. He can be trusted. I've told you before about the difficulties in the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man who was very, very acquainted with grief and suffering, died at the age of 57 through his own health complications. 
His wife was only able to have one pregnancy that delivered twins, and then she began to have health problems, and for most of their married life, she was an invalid, and he had to care for her. He was acquainted with suffering and hardship in ministry, and yet there's a quote that's often attributed to him where he says this, I I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Is that true of you? That in these hard times of life, you look at it and say, I don't like it, I don't enjoy it, I don't want to be in the wilderness, but the wilderness is what gives me closeness to God. And if that's true of you, then brothers and sisters, that's what we want. We want to be close to God. Is that your goal? Is that, is that where you are? Have you learned to trust the rock of ages? I would suggest that this has been difficult for us as a people, as Christians, as the church today in America. It's tough for me. I don't think we think enough about suffering as Christians. When you think about the, new, the, the, the Psalms, the people of God's singing book, somewhere between one-third and one-half of those Psalms, probably closer to a third, are lament. God, why? Here I am and hurting. How often do we sing songs like that? David and Goliath is a whole lot funner to preach about than David in the wilderness. And so in whatever ways that we as a church haven't talked about this enough, I think that's made it harder for us as people to go through those times as wilderness to acknowledge that, you know what? You don't have to come in here every morning with a smile on your face and say, life is good and glorious. We tend to think if we have enough faith, then we won't go through the wilderness or we get out of the wilderness quicker. That's not the way God works. And we need to, as a people, come together and learn to encourage one another in those times of lament and suffering. Again, Mark Rogop said this in his book, For centuries, lament has been the minor key voice of the people in pain. It is the language of loss that should be prayed together. While lament can be implied to moments of individual loss, its redemptive power is multiplied as we pursue it together. There is a song of mercy to be sung under dark clouds. The church should lead that way. Through every injustice, every sorrow, followers of Jesus can help one another find their way through the pain. Lament is the language of loss as we grieve together. For those of you that are in pain and suffering and wilderness this morning, God knows. He loves you. His hand is on you. He wants to bring you into closer intimacy with God. He's at work for good in your life. Here's how I'd like to close this morning, especially as we think of the church lamenting together, as the church holding one another up during this times of suffering. This will be a little bit unusual, but here's how I'd like to close this morning. I want to take a chance to pray for those of you that, that just are willing to acknowledge to others, you're in the wilderness, you're in a season of suffering, you're in a time of pain. If you're, I'm gonna, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand, and there will be others that will come around you and just place their hand on your shoulder and pray together with you. I know that will feel uncomfortable uh, to have that sense of transparency. If you're willing to do that, I just want to have a time of prayer together as we, as we lament together, as we say, God, we, we see these people pain. These are our brothers and sisters in the church. Why, God? How, how, how long? Be merciful. We trust you. And I want to pray together that way for you. If you're in a season of suffering and it's too uncomfortable to stand, 
no guilt. Um, this is not, what I'm doing this morning is not meant to shame, you know, if you really trust God, you'll stand. That's not what this is. What this is is simply those of you that are in pain, in suffering, in lament, and you just want your brothers and sisters around you to know and say, please pray for me. Um, we'll do that publicly this morning. So here's what I'll ask. If you're here this morning and you're in the wilderness and you would like your brothers and sisters to pray, I'm going to lead you in prayer. Would you just be willing to stand where you are this morning? Go ahead. I know that uh, it's uncomfortable to expose yourself in some way to this, but if you're here this morning, thank you. And in a season of suffering and wilderness, and you just, you, you want the church to be praying for you. You don't have to open up to others about that. Thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll come around you and pray. Thank you. I don't want to drag this out, but if there's any more that are willing to stand and you, you want to be prayed with, prayed for, now, if you see some of these standing, would you, would you be willing to go over to them? I know we have one behind the glass as well. Would you just place a hand on them? Would you just be willing to s slip up and come uh, gather around them and place your hand on them? We've got one back in the corner here. If someone would be willing to slip back here and just place your hand on them. Say, we're in you. I see you. We're, we're going to suffer together through this, asking God to lead us asking God to bring comfort, asking God to bring healing. I, I want to pray with you. There are others of you that are suffering, and we want to pray. Be praying for them even as I pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you as your children who are hurting. And our hearts say, why, God? How, how long does this go on? For what we know of you, this doesn't match. And yet we cling to your goodness, God. We cling to the truth of who you are. We know that you are a God who has been through the suffering with us, that Christ has paid the punishment for our sins and rose again. We cling to that truth and we cling to that hope. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters that are here standing this morning. If there be any of them that don't know you as Savior, God, work in their hearts to bring salvation. God, for those that do know you as Savior, just may they cling to you. May they trust in you. May they see you as the good God. Through this wilderness experience, may you draw them ever closer to yourself, Father. I ask and pray in Christ's name. Amen.